Well, I sure hope as we're looking at this overview of the New Testament that it's motivating you to uh, to read the New Testament and hopefully to understand it a little better than you uh, have in the past, perhaps. I love I love to read. Give me a good novel and I'm entertained for hours. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons I enjoy reading the Bible because so much of it to me is like a really good story. There's sort of two kinds of writing in, in the Bible. There's the teaching part, and then there's the story part. And uh, a book like Acts, is, although it contains some teaching, it really is a story. And to approach it like that is something that's really helpful to me. So I decided to do something weird uh, today, and you're saying, so what else is new? Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to kind of model for you... Um, how you can take parts of the Bible, the story parts of the Bible, and try to kind of imagine what it was like. Not just reading it as a story, but kind of trying to put yourself into it, to imagine what it was like for the people whose story is being told. So today, I want to tell you the story that's found in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. And after I've done that then, I want us to look at at four things that jumped out at that sto- from that story to me. So try to imagine with me maybe what it was like for those first Christians as their story is told in the book of Acts. Well, it was pretty confusing for Paul because he was so sure that God wanted him to go to the province, the Roman province of Asia, something he'd wanted to do for a long time, and it just felt like this was the perfect opportunity to do so. But frustratingly, every time they would try to do that, it didn't work out. It was almost like God was putting up roadblocks. You know, they'd try to make some plans to go here and it didn't work out. And they'd try to go there and it didn't work out. And one night, Paul got the answer that he was looking for. God gave him a vision. And during the night, Paul has this vision, like a dream, of a man, a Macedonian man, standing on a far shore. And the man is, you know, waving to him and signaling to Paul and calling out to him. I can't understand, I can't hear you, I don't know what you're saying. Come, come to Macedonia, help us, please help us. That was all Paul needed. He knew that that was the door of opportunity that God was opening for him to go to Macedonia, something he'd wanted to do for a long time. And so the next day he begins making plans for himself and his companions to head over to Macedonia. And by sea and on foot, they came to the cities of Samothrace and then Neapolis. And then finally they came to this thriving Roman colony, the city of Philippi, which was the sort of county seat for that area of the Roman Empire that was called Macedonia. Paul, usually, when he went to a city like Philippi, would go first to the Jews in the synagogue. But Paul, to his surprise, found out that there was no synagogue in Philippi, even though it was a really large city. Maybe that meant that there were few Jews there, although it only took ten Jewish men in order to have a, a synagogue. Or maybe it meant that the Jews there in Philippi were being persecuted and that there was a strong anti-Semitic attitude, which in fact turned out to be the case. But after asking around, Paul found out that there were a group of godly women who would meet each Sabbath day, not in a synagogue, but down outside the city on a riverbank. 
So when the Sabbath arrived, Paul and his friends went down to this beautiful, peaceful spot outside the city along the banks of a river. The women who were there welcomed Paul and his companions, and Paul began to tell them the beautiful story of Jesus Christ, of who he was as the Messiah and the Son of God, and how he had changed Paul's lives and the lives of so many other people. And the exciting thing was, it was almost like God had gone ahead of them and prepared the hearts of the people to receive it. They just seemed so open to the truth. In fact, one of the women who was there, a woman named Lydia, who was a wealthy businesswoman who dealt in selling purple fabric, actually became a Christian that day. And so she wanted to be baptized. And so that very next Sabbath, she and her whole household were baptized there on the edge of the river. It was a glorious beginning to the church of Jesus Christ in that Roman city. The next day when uh, she had invited Paul and his friends to stay in her home, as Paul left Lydia's house, they were confronted by a young woman. In fact, the word that the Bible uses to describe her really means kind of a teenager. She was dressed in these really bright, gaudy clothes that marked her as being a fortune teller, an oracle. Paul looked at her closely and sensed the presence of evil, demon possession. Every day after that, they were met by this young woman outside of Lydia's house, and she'd followed them all day, and she'd cried out through the power of this powerful demon in her. These, these are servants of the Most High God. They'll tell you how to be saved. Paul realized this was not just a battle for the the soul and the life of this young woman, but a, a, a spiritual battle taking place between this powerful demon who inhabited her and gave her this ability to be a fortune teller and the Holy Spirit of God which inhabited Paul and his companions. Day after day she followed after Paul until Paul had finally had enough of it. And he turned to her and he said, In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, I command you to come out of this girl. These are servants of the Most High God. Come out of her. I command you in the name of Jesus. Servants of God. She spit at their feet. Paul held out both his hands over the girl and he cried out again. In the power of the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, I command that you come out of this girl. The wind blew and whipped up the soil until it was a frenzy around her. And then in an instant, everything changed. She started to slump to the ground and Paul's companion Silas went up and grabbed her before she fell. And an amazing change took place as the look on her face went from that look of fear and hatred that she had had to a look of peace. The demon was gone. Her spiritual freedom had come. But Paul and Silas were soon to learn that the cost of her freedom had not yet been fully paid because even though she was freed from the, from the demonic spirit, she was still a slave. Later that day, the slave's owners found out what had happened. And now that the demon was gone, the power that she had to be able to tell the future was gone as well. Oh, great. Now, what do we do with her now? You know, it's like she's any good to us. She might as well be dead. At least then we wouldn't have to feed her and clothe her and take care of her. I'll tell you, they ruined our business. And if you guys don't do something about these Jewish rabble-rousers, it could be your business next time or yours. I say we go and find them and we get rid of them right now today before they do any more damage. 
And they gathered a mob of people around them and they rushed through the streets of the city of Philippi. Look, they're there. They're, those are the ones. The mob rushed over and they grabbed Paul and Silas and they began to beat on them with their fists to rip at their clothing. They literally dragged them through the streets of the city of Philippi to the central marketplace. That was a place where there were not only a lot of shops where they sold everything from, from sandals to, so, to, to slaves. It was the seat of government for the area of Philippi, in fact, for all of Macedonia. It was there that the Roman appointed magistrate would be found. And it was his job to keep the Roman peace and enforce the Roman laws in that very diverse culture of Philippi. Your Honor, the reason we're here is because of these men, these, these Jewish troublemakers who've come into our city and they're, they're teaching people contrary to the Roman law and they're causing all sorts of trouble and they ruined our business. And if you don't do something about them, there's going to be big trouble in this city. And so while the soldiers kept the mob back, the, the magistrate tried to call out over there, all right, all right, all right, listen, it's a good thing that you brought them here to me. You did the right thing. And saying to one of the guards, he said, I want you to take these men and strip them and publicly beat them and throw them in prison. That night, Paul and Silas found themselves in a dark, rancid prison cell. Their wounds had not been treated. Their feet were in stocks, which forced them into an incredibly uncomfortable position. And every time they would try to move to get more comfortable, it would just open up the sores and the wounds on their backs, and the bleeding would start again. Sleep was impossible. And so they did what they often did late into the night. Paul and Silas prayed together. And they sang some of the psalms from the Old Testament and some of the songs that were new in praise of Jesus Christ. He is Lord, He is Lord, He is risen from... Suddenly there was just a, a slight trembling, almost unnoticeable. And then it began to increase until the whole building shook. It was an earthquake. Philippi, from the time of its founding, had been plagued with earthquakes. And this was obviously going to be a bad one. The ground shook. The timbers that supported the roof of the jail fell down. Big chunks of rock fell out of the wall and smashed down on the wooden stocks that held their feet, almost crushing Paul's legs. In less than a minute, the shaking stopped and the dust began to settle. Silas, Silas, are you all right? Yes, praise God, I was not hurt. Silas said as he started to draw his legs and feet out of the smashed stocks that had, had encased him there. There was a big open hole in the wall to the outside and they could see on the street outside that people were running frantically back and forth or hugging at each other, afraid that another earthquake would follow the first one. The door to their cell had fallen partially off of its hinges and lay kind of on its side through the opening. And as the dust settled, they looked through their open cell door and they saw the jailer there. And he had pulled out his short Roman sword and he was holding it against his chest, ready to take his own life because he knew the Roman law that when a jailer lost a prisoner, when a prisoner escaped, they would forfeit their own life. And he knew without even looking in the cell that the prisoners would be gone now. And just before he gra grabs the sword into himself, Silas caught up, wait, please, please don't hurt yourself. We're still here. 
That's right, said Paul. Please don't take your life. We are still here. Calling one of his fellow guards to bring a torch, he stepped over all the debris that was on the floor and he walked into the dark cell. And there were Paul and Silas. He fell down on his knees in front of them. Sir, we have, we've heard about you here in the city. Everybody's talking about you and your God. Paul and Silas explained why they had not left the prison cell when they could have because of their trust in Jesus Christ and the promise that he made that he would take care of them. When the Philippian jailer heard that news, he said to Paul, Please, what must I do to be saved? And in very simple terms that a a non-Jew could understand, Paul explained to him about Jesus being the Messiah. And he said to the jailer, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved, you and your whole household. With the help of a couple of the prison guards, Paul and Silas were able to walk the short distance to the jailer's home. And there the jailer's wife tended to their wounds, cleaned the the wounds that were there and bandaged them. And as she did so, Paul talked to the jailer and to her about Jesus Christ He explained that he was the promised Jewish Messiah that God had talked about in the Old Testament and that he had come and proven his identity not just through his crucifixion but through his resurrection and his return to heaven. The Philippian jailer and his wife gave their lives to Jesus Christ that night and they requested that they be baptized, they and their household. And so it must have been a really strange scene in the middle of the night, in the midst of earthquake-damaged buildings, The Philippian jailer and his wife were were baptized by Paul. The children, too. The little ones giggled as Paul put the the cold water on their heads and the littlest one, an infant, slept through the whole thing. They fed them a good meal and as they talked about Jesus Christ and their new faith, the sun finally started to come up and the damage to the city was becoming evident to everyone. But life had to go on. And the magistrate sent one of the soldiers as a messenger to the jailer saying to let the prisoners go. But when the messenger got to the jailer's house, Paul spoke to him directly. I want you to go back to the magistrate and tell him this, that we were arrested and stripped and publicly beaten and imprisoned and put in stocks without a trial, without a conviction, and we are Roman citizens. And if the magistrate thinks that we're just going to sneak silently out of town, he's wrong. We expect him to come and apologize and escort us out. When the magistrate heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, he realized he'd made a terrible mistake. This was absolutely contrary to Roman law. It might mean that he would lose his job as the magistrate. In fact, it might jeopardize the whole status of the city of Philippi as a Roman colony. The magistrate went to the jailer's house himself. Please, sir, I am, I am so sorry. I did not know you were Roman citizens. I, I beg you, please do not bring charges against me. After Paul and Silas left the jailer's house, they went to the home of Lydia where they had been staying. And there were other Christians gathered there trying to figure out how they could best help their friends and neighbors whose lives had been so damaged by this earthquake. They prayed together with Paul and Silas and then in the midst of a lot of hugging and not a few tears, Paul and Silas left the city of Philippi. 
It would not be the last time that they would be arrested or beaten. And they knew that. But they counted themselves blessed that they were able to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. That's the story that you find in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. I would encourage you, if you get a chance, to read through that story and see how I took that story and tried to figure out what it was like, what it would have looked like and sounded like and felt like you know, to have been a part of that event. I think you can do that with the Bible as well. So I would encourage you to do that as you read stories in the Bible. Don't just read it. Try to put yourself into the story. And then after you finished reading it, I would say you would ask yourself the question, okay, what did I learn from that? You know, what jumped out at me from that story? Obviously, God put that story in the Bible for a reason. What is God wanting me to learn from it? So let me tell you what jumped out to me from that story as I read it. Four things I would want to share with you. The first is, I was surprised by the personal suffering that Paul and Silas had to endure. I think I've made a mistake in telling people sometimes that when you're doing God's will, when you're in the center of God's direction and plan for your life, that everything's going to go smoothly, that that's going to be one of the ways you know that God is blessing you where you are. But I see from a story like this that even for Paul and Silas, who were doing exactly what God wanted them to do, they still had to suffer. Now, granted, in some ways, their stop at Philippi was a huge success. People were becoming Christians. The, the church there was established. But they had to personally suffer a great deal in that city. So one of the things that reminded me was that even when we we're carefully and obediently following the plan of Jesus Christ in our lives, sometimes we are going to be called upon to suffer. And that doesn't mean that we're not living obedient lives to Jesus Christ. The second thing that jumped out to me was the idea that there was a, a spiritual battle going on, spiritual warfare. It was taking place between the demon that was possessing this young woman and the Holy Spirit of God that was possessing and filling Paul and Silas and the other Christians. For me, at least, most of the time, I'm just so focused on the physical and the material of life that I forget that there is a whole spiritual world there and that spiritual warfare is taking place around us all the time. I teach a men's Bible study on Wednesday night and we've been going through the book of Exodus. And you remember in that story of God bringing the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt under Moses' leadership, God early on gives Moses a sign that he can do to show people that he has been sent by the powerful God. The sign was, you remember, he was to take his, his shepherd's staff and to throw it down on the ground. And you remember what would happen to it? It would become a snake, right? So they go to Pharaoh. Moses throws his serpent down, his, his staff down. It becomes a snake. But then the magicians of Pharaoh do the same thing. They take their sticks, they throw them on the ground, and they also become snakes. And as we talked about this in our Bible study, we realized that there are only really two sources of supernatural power in the universe. One of them is the Lord God who is able to do anything, but the other is Satan and demonic forces. And the Bible warns us that Satan is able to counterfeit the actions and the miracles of God. In fact, I want to share with you some of the passages of Scripture that talk about this very thing. 
The first one is from, from the book of James, and it's talking about demons. And it says this, you know, you believe that there is one God, good. You know, even the demons believe that and shudder. You remember in the, in the Gospels how often when Jesus encountered a demon-possessed person that that demon would recognize Jesus as being the Son of God? In fact, maybe out of all the people who met Jesus and knew him, the, the beings that were most convinced that Jesus was the eternal Son of God were demons. Going on, Jesus, as he's talking about events that are going to take place at the end of the world, says this in Matthew 24. It says, For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if, if possible, even the elect. Paul writes about this in Second Thessalonians. He says, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And in the book of Revelation, which talks about the end times, it says, and it, it's talking about the beast, and it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. And so God is telling us, he's warning us, that just because we see a miracle being performed, that doesn't mean it's from God or that we ought to believe it. Jesus called 12 people to be with him, his disciples, remember? And in Mark, it explains to us why Jesus called this group of men to him. It gives three reasons. Let me read it to you. This is Mark chapter 3. It says, he, Jesus, appointed 12, and here's the first reason, that they might be with him. Secondly, and that he might send them out to preach. And third, to have authority to drive out demons. So I want to warn us, warn myself, remind us that there are times when Satan will counterfeit the miraculous acts of God and we need spiritual discernment to test the spirits and not just believe you know, that anything that's done in a supernatural way comes from God. That's a reminder that I get from this story. The third thing... I was impressed with this sort of spiritual partnership that takes place between the Holy Spirit and Paul as an evangelist. And there's a great phrase that you'll see when you, if you read the 16th chapter for yourself. In verse 14, it says this. It's talking about Lydia, this woman who became a Christian. It says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Sometimes I get to feeling like it's all my responsibility, that there are people who aren't Christians and I need to argue with them and convince them and persuade them and if I don't do a good enough job of it, they're not going to become Christians and the fate of their eternal soul rests on my shoulders. But I think God reminds us that it's a partnership between us and the Holy Spirit. And when Paul went to that river's edge... It's like God had been there already. It says, preparing her heart to receive the gospel. And I'll tell you, there is nothing more exciting in life than beginning to talk to someone about Jesus Christ and sensing that the Holy Spirit has gone ahead of you. You know, that that heart has been softened and opened so that when you share with them the, the message of Jesus Christ, they believe what you're saying is true. I love that partnership that God explains that we can have with the Holy Spirit. It does not rest just on us and our efforts alone. And the final point is, and I, I say this with some hesitation, it's the issue of religious freedom. 
um, Paul and Silas found that in the city of Philippi that they were um, opposed not just by the citizens of the city, but by the Roman government as well, a, um, a practice that continued for the next several hundred years. I believe um, that as a nation, we are coming very close to what is happening in other countries of the world, which is the persecution of Christians. And if I were to make a guess, I would guess that during my lifetime, that it's going to become illegal, it's going to become a crime to practice some aspects of Christianity. I see this happening especially as we are making a crime out of not just actions, but attitudes and words, so that people are judged to be using hate speech, or some of their actions are hate crimes. I would not be surprised at all if in the very near future it becomes a crime uh, to teach what the Bible teaches about some things like homosexuality. And that frightens me, but it also makes me aware that maybe we as Christians need to be very proactive and very strong in our defense of the religious liberties that are guaranteed to us in our Constitution. And, and you may not be really comfortable taking a stand on something like that, but I think there may be a time when God calls upon his people to take a stand for the freedom to practice and to teach our faith to others. We'll see what happens. Well, I hope that this series is encouraging you in your understanding of and your reading of the New Testament. Just a couple things to mention in closing. One is that uh, we have available these bookmarks, and I don't know if you got one of these before, but one of the neat things about it is that on, on this part of it, it has a timeline of the New Testament, when the things happened, when the books were written. That can be really helpful to you. The second thing is, when you read a part of the Bible, and I encourage you to read kind of big hunks of it, you know, not just a verse here and there, but chapters or maybe even a whole book, you're going to come across things that you don't understand. I, I find things that I don't understand. I know that you will too. And so you could just say, okay, I don't understand that. That's all right. And go on with your reading. But if you want to understand it, if you want to know what the Bible means by that, one of the ways that you can be helped by that is by getting a little book like this. This is called a commentary. And there are commentaries on every book of the Bible. So let's say you decided after today you were going to read the book of Acts. One of the things you could do is get a little commentary like this that will help explain to you what some of the tough things mean in the book of Acts. This is one on the book of Exodus that I use with my Bible study on Wednesday nights. It's cheap. It's six ninety-five. And so if you come to chapter 4, verse 9 in the book of Acts and you don't understand it, then you just look in the book, look up chapter 4, verse 9, and this author, who is probably a, a biblical scholar, will tell you what he believes, he or she believes, that that verse means. Now, you need to be a little careful about the book that you get, but if you went to a place like the Family Christian Bookstore in Waterloo, any book or commentary that you got there would be trustworthy and reliable. I'm sure of that. So I think God wants us to be able to understand as much of the Bible as we possibly can. And our hope is that during this six-week series, you know, that we'll all be kind of drawn back to the Bible in our appreciation of it and our understanding of it. So join with me as we pray and we thank God for the Bible and ask for His help in that process.
Lord God, thank you that you not only inspired and directed the writing of the Bible, but you preserved it for us. And, and it can make a difference in our lives today. We can really say, what, is, what does this have to do with me today? And find direction and encouragement and correction and the things that we need in order to live a life that is uh, pleasing to you. So I just pray for these friends that, uh, that even today they might just kind of be re-motivated to turn again uh, to the Bible and let you, Holy Spirit, speak to them through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.